Welcome friends and colleagues. Today we hope to complete the discussion of the second verse in Genesis and focus specifically on the Spirit of God that was hovering on the face of the waters. In the previous session we discussed the first way of understanding what Ruach Elohim means nothing to do with God as such but a very great wind. We've shown how in Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures, it is uh, not uncommon to call something really big and really important uh, by uh, tagging it uh, with uh, it being of God. <coughs> Today we'll proceed to two other ways of understanding that do keep God in picture, more theistic interpretations, you might say. And we start with the first one. We will have an excursion into the nature of spiritual and how spiritual and material may interact. This is the way the Bible sees it interacting. And uh, what the nature of inspiration comes from the word spirit might also be. And with that we will understand what this verse is trying to tell us, not only what it says. So the first thing is, let's look at the word hovers, or mirachefes. The entire verse is, the entire phrase is veruach, spirit elokim of God, mirachefes, is hovering in the present tense. Uh, the word is not that uncommon, but it's only found a few times. Uh, the closest in context would be in Deuteronomy 32.11, where it describes the relationship between God and the Jewish people in the simile of hawk and its nest. Kanesher Yair Kano Al Gozalov Irachef. Like an eagle, I'm sorry, not a hawk, an eagle, he awakens his nest over his little offsprings, he flutters. Fluttering and Mirachef also has some cognate sound, which further suggests a relationship between the word. Most Bibles translated as hover but flutter would probably be a closer uh, and more correct translation. So, in Deuteronomy, Rashi, this explains it like this. He does not lie heavily upon them, but lightly scrapes them, touching and not touching. Interestingly, here in Genesis, you would expect him to use the same explanation, and he does, kind of, but there is no eagle here. Instead, there is a dove. Rashi says, the throne of glory, that's the spirit of God, stands in the air and flutters over the waters 
through his word, like a dove who flutters over the nest. So here's the tangent number one. I want to understand why Russia changes what would be the best description, the eagle fluttering over the nest, which is specifically in the Bible, and uses the same word with the root of Rachav. And uh, instead goes uh, to the dove. This is not uh, the center of our discussion, but a worthwhile tangent nevertheless. So trying to answer this question didn't get me very far until I realized what Russia's source is. And the source is <coughs> the Talmud Chagiga, page 15a. This is the famous story of the four who entered paradise, three of whom came to a bad end, and only Rabbi Akiva entered in peace and left in peace. One of the people who entered was Ben Zoma, and he went out of his mind through what he saw. Now, how and which way? So this is what the Talmud says. The rabbis thought there was a story happening once with Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, who was standing on a step in the mountain of the temple. And Ben Zoma, again, that's one of the four people who entered and the one who went out of his mind. Saw him. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and did not stand before him. He did not show respect. So, he said to him, from where and to where, Ben Zoma, a very deeply meaning laden greeting, not a common greeting at all. So he said to him, I was looking in between the upper waters and the lower waters, and there is not between them but only three finger breaths only, as it says, and the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters like a dove that hovers over its children. So this is the exact quote that Rashi brings. But it doesn't touch. So Rabbi Yoshua said to his students, still Benzoma is outside. This is a teaching that requires interpretation. And Talmud does go into it to some small degree. But in relation to Rashi, we might we asked why he doesn't use the metaphor of the eagle and uses the dove. So here it is. This is the source. Is there a polemical um, point here? Rashi was living uh, and, and died, actually, at the time of the Crusades. This was a time of many forced disputations between Jews and Christians. Uh, it was also another time where you could put in writing any kind of uh, polemical uh, response. Uh, but Rashi, according to one of the great writers about his commentary, Abraham Grossman, his book has been translated and is available in English, um, believes that Rashi is, at times, 
motivated by uh, other considerations than simply exegetical ones, and that there are times where he writes to strengthen the broken spirit of Israel at that time of great persecution and destruction. As, as you may know, the Crusaders uh, argued that why should they be going to the Holy Land to fight infidels there? They're infidels, the Jews living right amongst them, and many Rhineland communities were decimated and destroyed as they passed by. Now, back to our topic. The image of a bird fluttering over the nest is an arresting one, but what does it actually mean? And I think the way to understand it is to treat it as a uh, communication of the nature of how material and physical interact and how the I'm sorry, the material and, and spiritual and how spiritual may be able to communicate with the material. To understand that, let us step back to the first chapter of Ezekiel. There you have an arresting image of these fiery angels that rise up above the glass ceiling and still a look at God over there, some image of God, and immediately they draw back. In Kabbalah and Hasidic teachings, uh, this is called Ratzo Veshov, which is a quote from Ezekiel, running and returning. And it indicates that contact with the divine can be only momentarily, only for a second. Then you have to draw back in order not to be consumed or absorbed within it. Let us come back to this at some greater length after we discuss a second interpretation of the Spirit of God, which is air. Air? Well, I had a recollection of uh, reading some place that Rabbi Moshe Taku, in his work Ksaf Tamim, uh, wrote that God is air. Now, what does that mean? So, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Rabbi Moshe Taku. Uh, if you wish to learn more, you can read uh, a uh, article by Rabbi uh, David Sedley, and there is also a uh, uh, lecture by Rabbi Lopiansky uh, entitled The Corporeality Which Never Was which uh, can be found on the internet. Bimoshi Taku is a fascinating figure whose work has not fully survived, but we do have fragments from it, and we have descriptions of his contemporaries. Uh, as philosophy began penetrating from Provence into the backwards regions of what is now Germany and France, 
he responded by arguing that God is not necessarily material, that God could have a body if he wanted to, and that we need to, or at least we can, understand uh, passages in the Bible that represent him in a physical form as some kind of uh, corporeality. Um, both of those uh, lectures that I mentioned uh, argued that he did not necessarily believe that God is only corporeal, but he believed that God is corporeal too. Unfortunately, I couldn't find, so I cannot reference for you that statement. But as, as I was looking for it, I found something from an even more consequential thinker, the Maimonides. In his Guide to the Perplexed, Part 1, Chapter 40, he identifies uh, the spirit or ruach everywhere as being air. Now, he does not do this on a philosophical basis. There is a whole um, group of commentators that looked at these first verses and said, hmm, we have here the four basic substances, as is known. Aristotle believed that there are only four basic substances, and they combine to create all kinds of materials that we actually see. A little bit of this and a lot of that makes wood, a little bit of this and a lot of that makes milk, etc., etc. The Rebavich Rebbe, as noted in the Gutnik Humish commentary on uh, the creation story, uh, perceived it as a, a kind of uh, primitive chemistry uh, and tried to adapt it to our chemistry as well. Said, so, well, what it's basically teaching in essence is that uh, different substances combine to produce other substances. So that's what our modern chemistry says and what, that's what they said too. Anyway, to go back, uh, Maimonides translates this spirit of God as being air. And he quotes many various verses that uh, he translates the same way. So this would then be air. And he doesn't say it in philosophical grounds. Uh, Siporna, for example, finds all four substances here. Well, there are actually five. There is heavens, which in Aristotelian philosophy are made of a different essence, which is not given to degradations and passage, like the four material substances. The four material substances are earth, water, fire, and air. Well, you got earth. In, in the Genesis account, you have waters. This spirit is air, and fire can either be found where air is the closest to uh, the earth, um, transforming into fire, or you can see it in the next verse where it says that God created light. And of course, there's no light without fire. Light could only have been produced by fire. A very interesting uh, translation, and uh, certainly takes care of the question of how you could have light without the sun and the luminaries. But I'm running ahead of myself. Let's, let's get back. So the second way to interpret is that it's not the wind of God, but it's air. Which will 
lead us to the main thesis of my talk today. It is interesting that in many languages, wind and spirit and breath are expressed by the same word. Uh, spirit could mean breath, and it could mean wind, that's what it actually means in the source languages, and it means some kind of a spiritual uh, sense that one perceives. Uh, the mystics of many religions have seen similar ideas in Christian mystics, and of course in meditation-based religions like Buddhism, this is a very common theme. But from the Jewish perspective, I saw that in Chayim Maharan, Nachman of Breslov talks about air being a continuous exchange. He sees and feels it as a breath uniting our insight to the outside of the world. And we are constantly in the giving and receiving by breathing in <coughs> and breathing out. If we take too much air in, we cut off our air. So there's a modulation in how much we can receive from the outside and how much we can give back. And uh, this is to him as paradigmatic of uh, spiritual perception. Uh, and we are surrounded by spirituality all around us, which is air. Uh, and we don't even know it. In, in Christianity, there's a concept of insufflation, which is used in various liturgical uh, situations, uh, used to be used uh, much more in, in Catholicism, still quite prevalent in Greek Orthodoxy. And the Greek Bible expresses the same idea in John 20, 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So, air, wind, spirit, inspiration, this is kind of uh, all uh, connected concepts. So let's explain that. So how is air and spirit and God and spirituality connected? Well, it's fairly simple. Remember, we said that we're surrounded by air everywhere. Do we feel it? No, we do not feel it. We do not feel it unless we move through it. If you take your hand and you wave it around yourself, you will for a moment that it's moving feel the wind and the air. This indicates to us that similar spiritual experience is also momentary. We have to be in the aroused state of uh, existence, we have to be moving through uh, the air, and at that time, for a very short period of time, momentarily, we might uh, feel something. This is the key, and this connects what I said before about the nature of inspiration, that it's momentary, it's just for a moment. You can touch something, and then it's overwhelming that you must draw back. That is called inspiration. Uh, like the holy highest angels, they can draw up beyond the ice ceiling 
and immediately not to be burned, but what they experience there, they have to draw back. As Mamanides says in the introduction to the guide, and this is an idea that predates him and is very common, it is similar to a flash of lighting in the dark. The flash is gone very quickly, but it gives us enough memory of what we saw to guide us through the darkness. In uh, Jewish liturgy, you find this concept expressed in the structure of the blessings. So there are blessings, blessings everywhere. Uh, everything uh, a Jew does must be accompanied or preceded, usually by a blessing. Eating, uh, performing ritual uh, functions, going to sleep, marriage, anything uh, has blessings. and. They have a very interesting structure. Uh, the blessing is, I remember, I heard in a lecture uh, by a great rabbi that he was riding the subway and he saw a kid sitting across him take out a candy and uh, pop it into his mouth. And he had an immediate reaction like he would have with one of his own kids, make a blessing, because he's supposed to make a blessing. Blessed be thou the Lord our God, that everything came to being through his will. That's what you're supposed to make in a candy. Uh, and then he realized immediately as he sprang back that this is a Gentile boy. He does not have that multiple connectedness to God that come to a practicing Jew uh, through blessings. Uh, this reminder, for example, that everything is made through his will. Uh, a, a believing Jew makes many types of food, not all, multiple times a day. So blessings accompanying an individual for a moment reconnect him to God before significant activities. But the structure of the blessing is, is truly perplexing. You're going from a second person, blessed be our thou God, and you go to who uh, created, uh, who let's say uh, brought the bread from the earth. So uh, started with the second person and switching immediately to the third person. Why is that? That's kind of strange. Why not finish in the second person? And uh, by Solomon ben Aderet de Rashba, who lived around uh, early 1300s, writes in one of his letters, this being response of 552, like this. He says, You have known already that there are two foundations and everything is built on them. The first one is God's existence is necessary and non-contingent, of which there can be no doubt. The second, that the full truth of his existence cannot be known by anyone other than himself. He may appear as if existing in revealed reality, but in truth his essence is hidden and unattainable to anyone. In order to impress upon us these two cornerstones of religion, the rabbis set up the text of blessings to express both the revealed and the hidden. We begin with blessed are thou, like a person who is talking to another person right in front of him. We then switch to 
who has commanded us with his ordinances. This is the version, as you say, for performing various ritual uh, services, functions. So that you switch to who has commanded that with his ordinances. For the essence of his being is hidden and unattainable. In other words, we approach God for a moment. We start off as an I-thou in Martin Buber's uh, expression. But then we must draw back because... Ultimately, it is inexpressible. Now, we seem to have wrenched far away, but we really haven't. Because now we can understand what is the spirit of God that is upon the waters. That is, by expressing it as a spirit, a wind, uh, moving air, we have um, thought, and this is what uh, the, the whole uh, purpose of the inclusion of this phrase is that the spiritual can connect to the material, which some thinkers might deny, but it is uh, a momentary uh, inspiration, a, a touching, a wind that rustles through our hair or touches our flesh. It doesn't stay. That experience is all we've got. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, one can't complete the discussion of this without touching on the Holy Spirit of the Christian uh, teaching. Uh, the, the believers in Trinity see God as being of one essence, but of three persons, one of which is the Holy Spirit. My contention is that Jews and Christians both perceive the same thing, but how they interpret and express it is different. There was a recent lecture by Alan Briel on uh, the Trinity. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Alan Briel teaches in Sitton, Sutton Hill uh, University, Catholic institution, uh, after having taught at Yeshua University for many years. And he is a theologian, interestingly enough, focusing on Christian theology, while being a rabbi and a practicing observant Jew. And he has given this lecture, which can be found on the internet, uh, making this very point. Um, the lecture was eye-opening and interesting, and uh, argued that Christianity personified what Judaism also senses and teaches that Christianity actually inherited Judaism, whereas Judaism sees all this as different stations in the process of revelation, different expressions of God, different dynamic structures that remain always connected to the source of the expression. And Christianity has elected to separate them and see them as separate beings. Interesting thought that warrants further exploration. And um, what I will put on my blog, avakesh.com, uh, when I come to uh, posting the outline of this talk, will be a side-by-side -side presentation of two Pentecostal experiences. And let people look at it and see what they think. The two experiences is, of course, one, 
that uh, is in Acts 2, uh, with the Holy Spirit descending on the Apostles, and Pentecost, which we call Shavuos, the holiday of Shavuos. And the spirit of the Mishnah, that descended upon Rabbi Yosef Karo and his fellowship in Safat, the spirit of the Mishnah. I'd invite the readers to look and compare and uh, hear their thoughts. In general, we've gotten a number of lectures into this uh, project. Um, I would really appreciate hearing from my listeners. That would help me to plan and shape uh, future talks. And of course, it would inspire me, which everyone needs to keep on going. So if you don't mind, drop me a line or two. Tell me if you're coming from the Christian or Jewish tradition. Help me understand my audience and serve you better. And the email address uh, that in which I can be through which I can be reached is Hebrew Bible to the world at gmail.com. Thank you very much and may you be accompanied only by blessings.